It's time to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel with Pastor Ray Greenlee. Today's sermon is pre-recorded. Lord, you've called us together today to do a work in our spirits and in our hearts. And I ask today that your presence would now come and do that work by the blood of Jesus Christ, both in the children and in the adults. I pray in your holy name. Amen. There are key events that happen in our life that are terminal events. When we look back, we see that what happened to us in that event changed the whole course of our life and our being. We didn't expect the change when it occurred. It came as a work of grace from the Lord God of heaven. I remember I was in high school. I'd been called as a small child to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I left home and went to a Christian high school, a boarding school, I was clear there I wanted to be a pastor. But by the time I had reached my senior year, I had second thoughts about pastors. I didn't like the pastors I saw. I didn't like the pastors I was sitting under week by week, and I said, I don't want to be one of them. And so I began to think about other careers that I might be interested in pursuing. And of course, one of those careers was law. Why? They got to argue and they get to make money, both of which I liked. So by my senior year, I'd made a decision I was going to go to a law school. I was not going to go to a Christian college. And I was going to go make money. Our senior trip was to a school called Columbia Union College in Tacoma Park, Maryland. I walked onto that campus and I walked through a stone arch. And on that stone arch was written the words... Gateway to service. And as I walked through that stone arch, the Holy Spirit spoke to me as he would speak audibly. And he said, I have chosen you to serve me. I knew I had to come to that college. My brothers had gone to a Midwest college out in the country. And here I was coming to Washington, D.C. I was a country boy. I had no business in the city. That one quick word from the Holy Spirit totally changed the course of my life. I looked up many years later, and the Lord said to me, There's your wife. Go meet her. I walked over to Jan. Now, I know she's my wife, but she doesn't know she's my wife. What do you say to your wife who doesn't know she's your wife? What do you say to a woman you don't even love, but you've been told you're going to marry? That terminal event totally shifted my life. 
it wasn't very long until I was deeply in love with her. And then the Lord grabbed a hold of her and said, Now you're going to stand beside Ray and preach. She came to me terrified. She said, The Lord just spoke to me. What did he say? He said, I had to preach. Well, are you going to preach? No. She's preaching. Terminal transition places in our lives where suddenly God grabs us and nothing is the same again. That's what needs to happen in this house today. God needs to grab your heart and speak into you a word that will cause you to be different when you leave this house today. Genesis, the 12th chapter. In the life of Abraham, there were three transition points. There were three terminal events where the whole life of this man suddenly shifted and changed. We find that first event in the 12th chapter, the book of Genesis. Abraham was a part of a pagan family. He was a descendant of Shem, but he was not following the Lord God of heaven. They had walked into total rebellion against God. They worshipped idols. And God, in his awesome power, came to this man And this was the message, chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. Leave all of this behind. Every one of us who has been called by God has heard that voice say to us, Come out. Come out. Be separate. Now understand, this was not salvation yet for Abraham. Let me use a big word, please. Prevenient. Prevenient faith. Prevenient grace. What's it mean? It means that God acts all by himself to make something happen. That's what the word prevenient means. God acts all by himself To make something happen. He steps into time and space and history and by His grace, something shifts or changes. Now the Calvinists would say that salvation is a matter of prevenient grace. It is irresistible. Arminius would say, absolutely not. You can resist the grace of God, but it is prevenient grace. John Wesley. John Wesley believed in prevenient grace that no man or woman ever attempted to save themselves by themselves. That God was the initiator of every man and woman's salvation. That there is nothing in me that desires God until God by His grace places it in me. And then I want God. Salvation is not a matter of my working. It's a matter of God's working. 
That's what pervenient grace teaches us. That God came seeking after us while we were yet sinners. And so today, all of you like Abraham have been called. Verse 4, Abraham left as the Lord had told him, but Lot went with him. And all of us, when we hear God's call on our lives, respond a little bit, but not all the way. That's the human heart. That's our condition before God. But this response that he made was not yet salvation. Many people respond in a halfway manner to the call of God and think that means that they're saved, but they're not. Salvation does not come by a half-hearted response to the call of God on your life. Salvation comes when you are made righteous. So when was he made righteous? Look with me at Genesis, the 15th chapter. This is after he has finally gotten rid of Lot. Some of you have some lots to get rid of. Some of you have answered the call to God part way, but you still have these precious things that you're still clutching to your heart. And it's time to let Lot go. He only causes trouble in your heart. Division, separation. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. Always the reason we only respond part way to God is we're afraid of Him. We're afraid, first of all, of what He's going to take away from us. We're afraid He's going to take away what we desire. Then we're afraid He won't take away what we hate. So we're afraid of God. We we don't want to give it up. But there are certain things we want Him to take. So we're afraid He's going to take what is precious to us and leave the garbage behind. But Abraham said, or Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? In other words, God, what can you do for me? Oh, this is always how the the person who's been called by God finally comes to the place where they say, okay, let's get to brass tacks, God. What are you going to do for me? Are you going to give me what I want or not? And if you're not going to give me what I want, then I'm not going to follow you. Either do it my way, God, or I'm out of here. I know what I need. What I need, Abraham says, is I need a son. I need a son. 
I don't need another promise, God. I need to see something in the physical realm that tells me you're there, God. I've had it with God's promises. Any of you ever feel this way? God, I'm tired of having your promises. I need something that's concrete. I need to see my husband changed. I need to see my wife changed. I need to see my kids changed. I need to see my health changed. I need to see my financial situation changed. God, don't give me any more promises. Just give me what I want. Oh, I have to tell you, I've said that to God. I've said, God, don't give me one more word of knowledge. I don't want words anymore. I want actions. I need to see something that's concrete to tell me that I'm on track. Don't tell me you'll be my protection. Just do what I want. Abraham, oh, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I'm childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. You've given me no children. Oh, and now you've got it. The person who is called to follow Jesus and does so in a half-hearted manner justifies himself by making accusations against the Most High. You are unfaithful, God. You are untrue to me, God. I can't trust you, God, because you don't do what I want you to do. You don't correct the people I want you to correct. You don't straighten the ones out that I need to have you straighten out. And especially, God, you don't straighten me out the way I want you to. I just want to wake up in the morning and be different. I want to be happy and have a fulfilled life and have a happy family and have a happy fence around my house. I just want to live the normal American life, God. Just let me be normal, God. And the word of the Lord came to him. Watch out when the word of the Lord comes to you. This man will not be your heir, verse 4, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. It's like, Abraham, you don't want any more promises? Okay, let me give you a real promise. He took him outside and he said, Look up to the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. Now here is one of the most amazing verses in all of the Scriptures. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. In other words, one of the great gifts of God is when suddenly in your soul, for no apparent reason, 
you just suddenly say, God, I believe you. All I have are promises. I have absolutely no evidence that anything's going to be changing. All I have is your word, but suddenly the prevenient grace of God comes into the heart, and you finally say, I believe you, God. You're the same as you were yesterday, except today you're saying, I believe you. You have no evidence except God spoke it to your heart. And you suddenly are credited with righteousness. That is, you are converted. You are made righteous. Did you know that's what brings God's righteousness into our lives? You thought righteousness meant you walked it out right. You thought righteousness meant you were going to do it perfect. But the Lord says righteousness is just believing Jesus. It's not doing it right. It's just believing Jesus. And Believing Jesus is a gift that comes from the Spirit where in our heart we say, I don't know why, but today I believe. Yesterday I didn't. I'm a changed person. I believe you, Jesus. You're going to do what you promised me you're going to do. I believe you. And suddenly joy begins to rise up in your heart and you say, I believe him. And you recognize you're a changed person. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. That was the second transition. We come then to a third transition in Abraham's life. This one didn't occur until he was 99 years of age. Huh. Some things take a while. Oh, okay. <laughs> I got that. <laughs> Some things take a while. The Lord appeared to him, and he said, I am God Almighty. Now walk before me and be perfect. Walk before me and be blameless. Okay, now, God came, and he called Abraham. Abraham did not go call God. God came and called Abraham. Abraham responded half-heartedly with reservation, with accusations against God. 
Then God came to him again. And this time Abraham said, Okay, God, I believe you. And God said, Okay, based on you believing my word, I'm going to credit you as being made righteous. Now he comes a third time. And he says, okay, I initiated first with you, and I called you. I initiated second with you, and I said, I'm going to credit your belief as righteousness. Now, Abraham, I'm coming to you and I'm saying, I want to see some action. I want to see you walk before me and be blameless. No more playing the games of the world. Walk this one out clean before me. No more sin in your life. Well, wait a minute. I thought salvation was a free gift. Do we have salvation here as a free gift with a string attached? God is now commanding him to love God. How do you think it's going to work? Janice, I command you as your husband, love me. Right. You think she's going to love me because I told her she had to love me? Go ahead, husbands, try that with your wives. See if that accomplishes the purpose. So God comes and he says, look, now you have to walk before me and be blameless. What is the first law? Come on. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. So if I'm going to walk blameless before God, I have to love him with my whole heart. So God is now saying, okay, from now on you love me perfectly. Oh, I'm uncomfortable with that, are you? On what basis can God say to Abraham, I order you to love me? Y'all comfortable with that? Is it okay if I come to you and say, okay, you love me? Or I'm going to cut your feet off. I'm going to throw you into hell if you don't love me. Then God, why didn't you just make me a machine Program me to love you. Yeah, sometimes I wish he'd just do that to me. Do you? Just make me behave, God. But then I always was told God didn't want machines to love him. He wanted people to love him. So here we have this conundrum. How can God command us to love him? Perfectly. I mean, this is not just love a little bit. This is not just, hey, Kevin, you're a nice guy. You got a pretty suit. And you're nice. I like you, Kevin. No, no. 
This is, okay, Kevin, here's my wallet. Here's everything I have. I love you. That's what God's saying. Come on, give me everything you've got. Love me perfectly. So how can God command such a thing? And be fair. How can he possibly expect the impossible from me? He's already come in and called me. He's already come in and given me belief in my heart. And he said, okay, I'll credit you now with righteousness. But now he set up the impossible. Now I have to love him. And I don't love anybody because they order me to love them. Love for me has to be a natural outpouring of my heart. It has to be a spontaneous outpouring of my heart in gratitude toward that person for who they are and what they are. That's how I love. Now, once in a while, I can love an unlovable person. But generally, when I do that, I feel really good about myself. Hey, I'm sorry. So how do I love God perfectly? And just a brief aside, some of you at this point would say, oh, but pastor... Wasn't there another great test when he offered Isaac? Wasn't that a terminal? No, that was just a crisis. You don't count crises. Let's come back here to Genesis 17. God took this further. God's changing his name. And then in verse 9, God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. And this is my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. The covenants you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, I'm sorry, gals, this doesn't make you shudder, but this makes a man shudder. You are to undergo circumcision, flint knives. And it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you for the generation to come. Every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner. So God is saying, that his covenant will be revealed in a circumcision of our flesh. And you know symbolically what we're dealing with here. The old Adamic nature is being cut off. All of man's ability to be productive in the flesh is cut off. And that from this day forward in this covenant, only God will produce anything. Now, in the midst of all this cutting off, he's saying, love me. Perfectly. Without blame, love me. 
Go to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, the 30th chapter. Let's read together. Verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and all your soul and live. The first step of salvation was God coming and saying, come on out of that mess. Come on out of that sin. And we all responded to that call with a a partial response. We came out, but we still held on to our lots. Our idols. And some of you are still there. That's all you've done. You're barely even in this building today. Then God came and He said, I'm going to put belief in your heart and I'm going to make you righteous. And you were born again. And now He came to you and He said, Now I want you to walk before me and be blameless. I want you to come and be fully sanctified. I want you to love me perfectly. And we say, how can we love you perfectly? He said, don't worry. I'm going to do the work in your heart. I'm going to circumcise your heart. You can circumcise the outside all you want. You can force the outer body to comply. You can strangle that man of sin until he stops smoking. You can strangle that man of sin until he stops cussing. You can make him conform. You can gussy him up. You can wash him up if you try hard enough. But you can't change the inner man. And that's why the Old Testament, the Old Covenant The Lord says, God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love Him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. God is saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to put my love inside of your heart so you can love me perfectly. What I want you to see today is that this salvation deal is all a gift of God. It's not our work. It's His work. But there is a response that God is looking for and asking for. That we would let go of our lots. We'd let go of those idols. We would respond to Him wholeheartedly and let Him accomplish in our hearts the work that He wants to do in us. For some of you, nothing is working out in your family. Nothing is working out in your life. It looks like destruction on every hand. And God is coming to you and saying, will you believe me? Will you believe that I can rescue you? Will you believe that I can redeem your family? Will you believe that I can redeem you? Will you believe me? And all he's waiting for is an answer, yes, to get the redemption process started. 
God is the pursuer. He's the one who started this, and He's the one who's going to finish this. But we need to look at the New Testament. I need you to see clearly in the New Testament this same truth. See, the Old Testament and the New Testament don't teach different Gospels. It's the same Gospel. Look in the book of Colossians. Colossians, the second chapter. So then, in verse 6, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him. How did you receive Jesus as Lord? By coming out of the sin that He was calling you out of. By saying, yes, Jesus, I'll come with you. And you decided to go on that pilgrimage where you would follow Jesus and do what He asked you to do. Now He's saying, just as you received Him, just as you began to come out of that mess, keep coming out of that mess. Be rooted in Him. Be built up in Him. Be strengthened in faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. So as you as you hear the gospel call on your life, you come more and more into Jesus Christ and roots begin to grow down until finally you say, I believe you, Jesus. I believe you're willing to save me. I believe you're willing to bring my family back together. I believe you're willing to change my heart. I believe you're willing to create in my heart what's necessary so that I can love you. Verse 8, see to it then that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on God. The basic principles of this world say things are only going to get worse. That's the law of physics. Entropy, isn't it? Everything winds down. Everything's going to get worse. So your marriage is going to get worse. Your health is going to get worse. Your job is going to get worse. Your kids are going to get worse. Everything's going to get worse. That's what the world's philosophy is. And so they say, come and work really hard at it and see if you can change it a little bit. But in the end, you're going to die. Jesus comes in, the same law of entropy says, that unless an outside force comes into this situation, it's going to go downhill. But when this outside energy comes in, it moves back up. So the marriage begins to grow better. The children begin to grow better. Why? Because God is intervening. God is inserting Himself into that situation. God is inserting Himself into your life. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. 
In other words, every power of heaven and earth is in Jesus. And when he begins to insert himself into your life, things begin to change. You have been given fullness in Christ. In other words, there is no power in heaven or earth that is not available to you if you will simply respond to what God is trying to accomplish in your life today. Verse 11, in him you were also circumcised in putting off the sinful nature. This is not a casual throwing it over there. This is literally saying, in him you were also circumcised in putting off, in utterly Casting off for good. Paul actually creates a new Greek word that's not used in secular Greek literature for putting off. He puts two pronouns together with explosive force, meaning to utterly cast out. In other words, when we are circumcised by Jesus, the old nature is utterly cast out of our heart. We're different. Have any of you struggled like I have year after year against certain things? Until you finally say, there is no victory. I've just got to learn how to live with it. Just got to learn how to cope. This is who I am. I'm sorry. That's true until you're circumcised. When you're circumcised by Jesus, you're a different person. You see, part of what's happened in our culture is we've gotten so much of the world's food in our mouths and so little of Jesus that we've begun to believe the basic principles of this world and we've taken our eyes off Jesus. And we don't recognize what he can do for us. Not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all of our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us. He took it away and nailed it to the cross. Now please, I want you to get this. You didn't call yourself to be a Christian. Jesus called you to be a Christian. You didn't make yourself righteous by trying to do everything right. You can only be made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. You can only be sanctified and made new without the old man of sin hanging on 
by Jesus Christ coming and cutting that old man of sin off your heart. You have to see what's available to you from Jesus so that you'll stop eating at the pig's table of the world and know that there's a feast that's been prepared for you. Who in his right mind would come to this table spread with bread and wine and look at that and say, I'd rather have garbage with maggots. None of us would. You'd say a man was insane to want to go to the garbage can when he could feast at the table. But the basic principles of this world have so blinded us that we have imagined there's no out for us, there's no rescue for us, there's no way out of this dead-end situation that we're faced with. This marriage is dead. There's nothing I can do to bring it to life. I might as well get a divorce. This marriage just can't happen. My body is dying. I can't live. It's impossible. I'm never going to be able to go to work and represent Jesus because out of me comes this filth. I'm helpless. I can't change it. Jesus knows that. Jesus is saying, let me step in. I'll change it. I'll change you. In the Narnia series, in the last book, it's the story of the great battle. And after the battle is all over, there are some little elves there. Stubborn little guys. Bitter of heart. Angry. Accusing Anselin of every unclean thing. They're handed a plate of beautiful food to eat. And they cast it down on the ground and say, that's garbage. And they go over and they begin to pick up the garbage and say, this is the feast I want. I don't want to get to heaven and say, this food is garbage. But of course you know that garbage is only defined by what we like. One defines one food as garbage and another defines it as a king's meal. This is why we have to have Jesus come in and circumcise our hearts so that we think the way Jesus thinks. When we see his food spread, we say, that's a banquet. When we see the devil's food spread, we say, that's garbage. That happens when Jesus circumcises our hearts. So today, will you let Jesus begin this circumcision process? You understand what's entailed? Just so I can have truth in advertising here today, I have to read it for you. I'm obligated to. Chapter 6 of the book of Romans. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Or shall we go on eating at pig's trough? 
enjoying the grace of God? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with Him like this in His death, we will certainly also be united with Him in His resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. There is no such thing as a sinning Christian. A Christian who has been sanctified has had that old sin nature cut off. But what I want you to hear today that's so precious to my heart is that you can't cut it off. Only Jesus can cut it off. And it's up to us now to respond to His offer by giving all of our time and attention and earnest seeking that He might do this in our hearts. That we would no longer turn to the things of darkness, bitterness and rage. That we no longer turn to the drugs. That we no longer turn to the alcohol or to the television or to, to the food. You know, some of you, alcohol is a temptation. Some of you, anger is a temptation. They're both drugs. Some of you have food as your drug. Some of you have money as your drug. They're all drugs. They all affect the mind and the body and the soul the same way. They inebriate us. They numb us out. And I understand why we go to it, because life seems so bitterly painful that we have to have one moment of pleasure to satiate us so that we can make it through. It's turning to Jesus. That's where we find the healing. Everything else is a temporary fix. Jesus can step today into your situation if you'll allow him to. Ask him. Ask Him to circumcise your heart. And believe that He'll do it. You don't need to spend another moment fighting. You don't need to spend another moment feeling sorry for yourself. You don't need to spend another minute cursing the blackness and the darkness. You're invited into the light. the end of myself I'm empty and dry I have nothing to give 
but surrender inside. Let down your nets. This is not the end. From now on, you'll be fishers of men. Judgment calls out my name. I've been looking for love, but I'm swallowed by shame. Throw away all your stones, find forgiveness in me. Let me be your new passion. My daughter, you're free. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. At the end of myself, I've done things my own way. This world gave up on me. Now it's death I do pay. You know who I am. I'm sin sacrificed. Today you will be in hell. so much for joining us today you've been listening to pilgrim's progress brought to you by the national prayer chapel in woodbridge virginia write to us at the national prayer chapel post office box 2346 
Whitbridge, Virginia 22195, or visit us online at nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you. We love you. Thank you.